and welcome to the future of football brought to you by The Athletic. Now, last time out, we attempted to sort out the future of the EFL. This week, we're turning our attention to women's football. What needs to happen for the women's game to achieve a critical mass of support and funding? Big strides have been made in terms of the profile of the women's game, but attendances are still relatively low and significant commercial revenue is still hard to come by. So what needs to change? A club like Liverpool at the moment doesn't appear to have room for its women's team at their new training ground. So how much progress have we really made? This is the Future of Football brought to you by The Athletic. And with us to discuss this on this pod, Meg Linehan, US women's soccer writer for The Athletic, Sarah Shepard, staff writer for The Athletic covering football and boxing, and the former England goalkeeper, Rachel Brown-Finnis. Let me start with you, Rachel. Obviously, we will talk about American women's football as well in this. Um, Can we compare the UK market and the US market? Are they separate entities? Can the UK learn from the US? Absolutely. I think what we have done in the when we wanted to set up the Women's Super League, which I think was nine years ago now, was look at the best practices from around the world, look at what works, what doesn't. And so we've always looked to the US as that's been the most successful domestic league as far as attendances and the draw of the best players in the world. But I think we're in a different place now as far as what the Women's Super League means. You know, it's been fully professional. This was its second year as being fully professional. It's attracting some of the biggest names in world football. But it's kind of a, a tipping point in some ways. And I think the timing of bringing in a new manager as the England manager could almost tip it, tip the balance somewhat as to what that, if that manager, as an example, comes in, is someone like Jill Ellis, who's had a lot of experience working with the US structure, what it looks like, the blueprint that they have over there. You know, will they look to radically change the structure of the domestic league to really put more sway and more precedence on the national teams as they do in the US. Meg, when Rachel talks about what the UK can learn from the US, do you think from your experience of writing on the US side of things and looking at the UK that there are some concerns that are the same on both sides? Absolutely. I think that, you know, when you look at it in the greater context of professional leagues, the concerns are largely the exact same thing. I just think that there are differences in when you look at the National Women's Soccer League here in the United States, we have kind of this mixture of models for for independent clubs. Um, Some are affiliated with a lower division men's team. Some are affiliated with Major League Soccer. So we kind of have this mix of interests, whereas in the UK, there really is just kind of this standard, you have a men's club and then the the associate women's club, right? So I think that's kind of where our major difference is. But when you actually look at, you know, trying to gain visibility and media coverage, right? Trying to increase attendance, um, trying to get that foothold, right? In a world that is kind of just kind of like obsessed with men's football, really a lot of the challenges are very similar. So let's let's deal with that point first of all then Sarah which is uh, and and your article on on Liverpool's women's team is is on the Athletic and and is a is a remarkable read in many ways about the relationship between Liverpool's women's team and the club or in many ways lack of relationship. So where where do you think we are at between the relationship between the women's game and the men's game? I think I think it it varies across across the clubs. Um, I think 
at some clubs you see it working um, really well. I think uh, at Chelsea, because they've had Emma Hayes there since I think 2012, she has really worked exceptionally hard to to develop the relationship between the women's team and the, the, the club as a whole. And they seem really well integrated. Um, you know, they, they have their own space at Cobham. I know that the a lot of the men's first team and academy players go and watch the women train and, and it seems to work really well. But at Liverpool, there seems a, still a, quite a disconnect um, between the club and the women's team. And it it's, it's a bit jarring because of the message that Liverpool have been putting out which is this two teams one club ethos but when I spoke to a lot of people for that piece the the feeling that they were getting with it was that that really wasn't the case when you sort of dug down into the details you know they're tra- training and playing at Tramir's uh, training ground and and Prenton Park where the pitches aren't aren't great and and Liverpool are, are put 50 million into building this brand new training ground and Seemingly, the women aren't aren't included in that. The club will say that that in their view, this is something that they are always talking about, and that's it's never say never that the women will be there. Um, but as far as the people around the women's team are concerned, you know, they are training at Tranmere, and they've not been told anything different. Um, there there is only one year left, I think, on that contract with Tranmere. So the club are saying, you know, who knows after that year is up. But but as of now you know nothing has been said about them training at the new training ground so you 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 do wonder why when Liverpool have built this new brand new facility why they haven't just included a you know an area for the women's team it it just it doesn't seem to make much sense do the positives outweigh the negatives of women's teams being associated to men's teams or would independence work work better i think the the financial viability uh, of a women's team in the women's super league because there's a huge difference between the budget for a women's super league team being fully professional uh, and the standards it has to fulfill to meet the criteria set off set by the fa uh, than any other non-women's super league team but i think the benefits do outweigh the negatives i mean i live in liverpool and it frustrates me no end to see Liverpool playing at support in the women's team. Um, it's a facade, simple as that. You know, when they had the showcase game at Anfield, as an example, against Everton, which a number of, of teams had local derbies this season, uh, it was brilliant. And, you know, they put on a good show. There was nearly 30,000 people came to watch the game. But then, you know, the next day you hear the the women um, are struggling to, you know, the housing situation for the players uh, is really poor and has not been thought about. The press release about, as you said, the training ground uh, being all singing, all dancing, but absolutely no consideration, uh, not a single factor uh, being thought of for, for the women's team. And, um, you know, if anything, now they might be forced into them being an afterthought. So it's still very frustrating when, I'd like to say that they're the anomaly, Liverpool, because I know Everton, uh, the really positive things that they've done, they're certainly on an upward uh, in the ascendancy uh, as far as their relationship between the men's and the women's team. You look, we've already talked about Chelsea, Arsenal, uh, 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 again, do an exceptional job, I think, of, of it being one club. Manchester City uh, are another really good example of that. 
So I think the benefits do outweigh it. And, you know, there has been talk of, well, is it worthwhile the FA maybe letting it go and the Premier League taking over the running of the Women's Super League, which would really fit that ideology of every men's Premier League team having a women's team. Do you think, Sarah, that that Rachel's hit the crux of the issue here with the women's game in general when she said Liverpool are playing at having a women's team. And I'm not just talking about football clubs here. You could you could throw some media outlets into it. You could certainly throw sponsors into it. There's a big difference between playing at it and treating it properly. There is that, that issue. I think we saw with the criticism that Manchester United used to get when they, they didn't have a women's team. Basically, eventually, you know, they, they were conceded that that they probably should launch a women's team and and now they're they've put a lot of backing into it and and it's doing it's doing really well but with Liverpool it it does seem like they want they want to be seen to be doing the right things you know they took the women to the US on a pre-season tour and and were very quick to say you know we're the first club to do that which is correct you know and it, and it was great they t- took the women to to the US but the reality is where that once they were there I think they played they played two games against um, lower league opposition. They were staying separately from the men. They travelled separately from the men once they were there. And then they got the plane home together. So, you know, and, and those, those, those games weren't even played in front of, they weren't, tickets weren't sold for those games. So if you're talking about it being a profile raising exercise, I'm not sure that that really worked either. Um, so the club were very keen to get the pos- positive publicity from that, from that tour but when you speak to people around it who were actually there and experienced it, they, they didn't really kind of feel that it was a beneficial th- th- thing for them. Meg, you wrote this article in, in November of last year on, on Megan Rapino and talking about sponsorship of the NWSL and uh, and all about Budweiser. There's a, there's a brilliant quote from Rapino in, in that. I can go into all these rooms and have all the conversations I want and we can sit in there and we can say how important it is to support women's sport and yada, 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 yada. We've been doing that for years. We've been in a million of those rooms. This league is still where it's at with the lack of corporate sponsors. And that's what I'm talking about, the the playing at it, just to, you know, tick tick the, oh, look, we're do, we, 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 we do a bit for women's sport, we do a bit for women's football, and actually properly taking it seriously and putting your money where your mouth is. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that quote really sums it up, and I think the situation at Liverpool really sums it up. You can say that you're doing it for all the right reasons, right? And, and obviously, you know, you look at the 2019 World Cup, and the appeal of having a sponsorship there, obviously very high, a lot of eyeballs. There's this gender equality aspect to it, right? Which is going to put you in this different conversation. But then at the end of the day, where are you really ending up? First of all, like the, the question of, do you have a stakeholder or multiple stakeholders that actually want to own this and propel it into something better? And I think that's why... I mean, we're having all of these conversations about men's sports structures running women's sports structures. And I think that there is, on this side of the pond at least, kind of an inherent, I don't want to say distrust, but a questioning of, at the end of the day, if if you're 
finances are looking questionable, what are you going to protect first? Your men's team, which makes you a lot of money, or your women's team, which probably doesn't, but is going to be a long-term play. And so that's, I think, kind of a big question that we're still grappling with over here is, what is the safety net that a men's sports structure actually provides for women's sports? And is that worth it? Are you anywhere near an answer to that question in the discussions that are being had over there? Not necessarily. I think that, you know, and that's the nice thing about NWSL is that we see all of these models coexisting at the same time. So even right now, considering, you know, the the impact of coronavirus, right? Like we're starting to see furloughs on the affiliated clubs that have both a men's and a women's team. Some employees are being furloughed there, whereas the independent clubs who are only looking out for their women's teams have not been affected by those same things. So I think that there are pros and cons. I don't know if there's necessarily a correct answer, but I think it just, it really depends on what you want to prioritize and what I think the the questioning comes from is at the end of the day, are you going to prioritize a women's team and truly make them as important as your men's team when Maybe the finances don't necessarily line up today, right now, but they might 10 years in the future. That will be the worry here as well, Rachel, won't it, in this current situation? And, you know, we haven't really mentioned the current situation that's going on, but in all of these future of football debates, you sort of have to look short term and long term. But the women's game will will be a very much a long term project. But the short term situation, bearing in mind what Mega said, will will be a worry to a lot of women's teams over here. It will be, especially, you know, those, as we said before, where the budgets are, you know, exceed a million pounds, you know, which most women's Super League teams, I would think, is in about that ballpark figure. They don't make money. They lose money on an annual basis. Um, but it's a long-term project. Uh, you have to speculate to accumulate, is what I believe. I was thinking, if the Premier League took over the running of the Women's Super League. You would think that everything that the Premier League did for women's football would be to benefit the Premier League. Therefore, then, as an umbrella across both men's and women's, if they want to make it financially viable, financially sustainable, then, you know, the money that the Premier League get as a business, you know, is is massive. So just as that figure I threw out, a million pounds... Is, is virtually nothing, really, if you are talking Liverpool, who, if you're talking £200 million a year for TV rights, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If the Premier League were to take over the running of domestic football, you would think that in the best interest from a, a sponsorship point of view, from a commercial point of view, they would do everything they could to generate revenue. They would do it properly. Not that the FA are not doing it properly, but I feel in some ways they are they are colliding with men's football rather than trying to complement each other. So actually what you would say is if if the Premier League used their same model on a women's Premier League, then so for, so for example, the Premier League doesn't have a title sponsor because they just want to brand it as the Premier League. So if they followed that model and then brought various partners in that didn't have to be the same as the men's, then that could financially benefit the game with their expertise. What I mean is if the Premier League as a business right. are wanting to make money, which is what they do, is that they will 100% back the project that is in front of them. And if they take women's football as that project, you look what's happened with the men's Premier League. I'm not going to say 
that that is what will happen with women's football. But it, they will do. It, it won't become, they'll have their own departments for women's football, but they'll see it as another project. They won't just do it because they think it's the right thing. They do it because they want to make money out of it. So I think they'll, from a commercial point of view, they have a, a massive reach, you know, a huge worldwide reach. We've seen the viewership of women's football during the last World Cup. People are, are watching the game. People want to watch it. There is an appetite for it. And with more people, sorry, with it being on, on uh, mainstream channels, it becomes normalised. Um, people don't go, oh, there's a women's football match on TV. Although I think anyone would love any football to be on TV at the moment. Um, but as the sport is is normalised, and, and I think the Premier League could have a huge hand in adding credibility to women's football. Not that it should need it, but it is still, you know, a minority sport as far as, uh, as, far as um, people viewing it. And what that could also help with is when we're looking at the model at, in the US, the FA could solely take over the running of... The national teams and with that the resources you know wouldn't be drained away away from the WSL and could you look at getting your national team players into camp a hell of a lot, lot more than what they are currently like the US women's national team do and uh, hopefully replicate some of the success that the US women's national team have had. Oh there are so many things that have come out of that one answer let, let, let me st- let me start with the national team then Sarah listening to Rachel would would you prioritize the England women's team over domestic football i.e. would you use the England national team to sell the game as much as possible even if that affected the domestic league? Oh, I can see the the logic and I, and I obviously recognize that the success of the the women's national team in, in the US has had by, by doing it that way. But I, my concern would be that we've spent the last nine years building the, these clubs in the WSL, building the teams up. Um, and if you then say, well, you know, they're going to lose all their best players to go into training camps for this many months of the year, what happens then to this domestic game, which we've been trying to build and, and, isn't that where the future England players come from? You know, don't we need a strong domestic game to, to help create the next generation of, of Steph Haltons, etc.? If, you, if you're taking away the, the attention and the profile from that domestic game, you're also taking away attendances which aren't, you know, aren't doing as well as we would like anyway, um, and profile. And, and it, I can't help but feel it would, it would not be a great, a great thing for the domestic game, which... You know, we've we've been trying to build up for the last however many years. I am really just playing devil's advocate with all of these um, opinions, suggestions, thought thought provocations because I I believe you know I think it'd be exciting if someone with a profile of Jill Ellis came in and took the England job. I think these would be a lot of the questions she would be asking. And that's simply really why I'm kind of bringing them up. And that's the whole point of these podcasts is to is to throw the suggestions out there and and to the people listening they can then take these ideas and agree with them or, or disagree with them such as when we did the EFL it was all about do do we regionalize league one and league two and make it a, a north and a, and a south division and Meg give me an American p- perspective on on balancing the interests of a national team against a domestic league right obviously U.S. national team is really the team for U.S. soccer in terms of results uh right at the moment so I think that 
<laughs> at least from our point of view over here, it's actually very interesting because you have this very strong national team players with giant profiles who then go play in their domestic teams, right? So there definitely is, I think, a good balance in that they actually, you know, play most of the season in NWSL outside of tournament years. But I, I think that we're starting to now see a push for greater importance on the domestic teams. I think a lot of the, the clubs in England already have obviously this sort of profile, right? Like, you know, Chelsea, you know, Everton, you know, Liverpool to some extent, whereas that's not necessarily the case. These are mostly original brands for uh, the women's teams here. So there is this push to strengthen the NWSL to, to have a better national profile, whereas the U.S. national team is the team for us over here. So it's almost we're, we're coming at it from a we're trying to balance it a little bit more. Um, but I, I do think that there is, I think, as Sarah said, like a huge importance in having those national team players play in the league having that competition be high, like that's always been the NWSL's big selling point is parity and the quality of play, because that's where you get essentially your, your future national team players having a coach like Blacko Andonofsky for the national team right now, who comes from the NWSL, he will be using NWSL play as one of his main evaluation methods for rosters for the national team. So I think that the balance is maybe uh, a little bit better over here on that front. When looking at women's sport in America, Meg, when when women's football is, is discussed, written about, broadcast, whatever it may be, so, such as the women's national team, actually, are comparisons made with with, with men's football? Or, or is that, or does that not really happen with women's football? And if, and if it doesn't, if you take another... Is women's basketball compared to men's basketball a lot? Or are they treated yeah. independently? Women's basketball here is actually, it, it's a great comparison point because the WNBA is essentially run by the NBA. So mm. that has a very different model. And I, I think it's actually a very interesting comparison point for NWSL compared to the national team. Really the only people comparing the, the US team or the women's team to the men's team the, those two games was actually uh, former arguments used by U.S. soccer in their defense against the players' lawsuit for them for equal pay, <laughs> which became yeah. so toxic that they had to throw it out. That's really the only time that we've, beyond like jerks on Twitter, right? Like the only people really making that argument were actually the the old law firm for U.S. soccer saying, well, women don't have the same strength and skill of men players, so it's two completely different sports. And that went over so poorly that those lawyers are now no longer uh, on the case <laughs> for U.S. soccer. So I, I do think that there's, there's, you know, like there, there's certainly discussions about it. And it, in terms of like, you know, you don't want women's soccer to be kind of like a little sibling to men's soccer. But when it comes to direct comparisons, we're at least kind of fortunate on that front. But when you have the women's NBA compared to the men's NBA, do they get viewed independently? Because over, I, I often think over here, and it isn't just women's football, I know a lot of other sports that always view, them, either view themselves 
or people compare them to the behemoth of the Premier League. And that's men's and women's other sports. You know, I've had discussions with people who want to, you know, improve coverage of rugby union or rugby league or horse racing or whatever it may be, and they can't get out of the shadow of the Premier League. Therefore, if I'm looking at something like the NBA, is women's NBA in the shadow of men's NBA? Yeah, and I think that's actually... That's a good comparison, right, is we kind of have our major four sports over here where we have NFL, NBA, MLB, and then to some extent NHL, right? Like even kind of hockey is relatively in the shadow compared to those three sports. Soccer is really sport number five, right? So women's soccer is is not just in the shadow of major men's sports. It's then in the shadow of men's soccer. And when you look at coverage, the, the big international tournaments get a huge amount of coverage. I mean, the U.S. sent, uh, God, like I was a part of a pack of 30, 40 U.S. reporters for the entire tournament in France last summer. So the major tournaments get coverage. And then when you look at something like NWSL, it kind of drops further and further down. Technically, like I am the only full-time women's soccer reporter for a mainstream outlet in the entire country. It's just me. Wow. For a mainstream outlet, right? <laughs> so wow, it, it's <laughs> yeah. I love I love dropping that fact on people. So when we're, we're when we're talking <laughs> about the visibility part of it, yes, like there is absolutely. But we have the. I mean, like the NFL really rules everything at this point. So you have kind of this this pyramid of uh importance and so yes you have premier league and then the comparisons there but we kind of have this you know you have your big four and then soccer is kind of this outside thing and then within that you have women's soccer and so there's a lot of layers to it over here comparisons just aren't helpful are they sarah and that's why i say to other sports as well i mean i know you you as rachel said you might want to tie uh, a women's Premier League more to the Premier League, and there are there are positives for that. But but the Premier League just dominates the sporting landscape, male or female. Yeah, absolutely. Like, obviously, like Meg says, that the the only times you really hear people comparing directly comparing the men's game to the women's game are the the jerks on Twitter, as she she excellently put it. Because you know we have to remember that that women's football in this country was was banned for fifty years. Um, you know, there was a very long period of time where women weren't playing it for, you know, in matches or for fun. It just it wasn't it wasn't a game for women. So, of course, the things are going to be in a very different place to where men's football is now. Um, and you just have to, to treat it as as a sport in its own right and, and appreciate the level that you see, which is, has been improving year on year. And it's the same. It's the same with with most sports, I think, like. Why, why do we have to compare <laughs> how men do something to how women do something? We are very different. Um, we should all kind of appreciate those differences. Um, yeah, I just, I always think it's interesting when it comes to something, a sport like cycling. Um, when you're watching cycling on TV, you can't tell if it's a man or a woman beneath their helmet. Um, you know, so during the Olympic road race, for example, the, the women's road race in, I think it was 2012, was phenomenal. And a lot of people said, oh, women's cycling is exciting. Like, well, how do you, you were just watching cycling, <laughs> you know, it's um, to say, oh, I don't enjoy watching women cycling is it, it just, yeah, you can't tell whether it's a man or a woman when you're watching on TV. So do you think there's a difference? I will bring Rachel in. But as you cover boxing as well, do you think there's a difference between 
individual sports and team sports and the comparison thing. I, I mean, I don't, I never hear Nicola Adams or Katie Taylor, for example, compared to what Carl Frampton or Tyson Fury are doing. Yeah, um, women's boxing is in a very, a very different place. Um, yeah, I think Katie, Katie Taylor is is a good example because I've heard a lot of male boxers, professional male boxers, say it's just like watching a guy box. I have actually heard them say that because right, okay. you know she's her her skill level, her speed are just phenomenal. Obviously, she's she's an exceptional talent and the depth in in women's boxing is not quite at the stage where we've got enough Katie Taylors yet for that to be the case across the board but I think it's definitely more the case with team sports like rugby etc you do find people are like well why why is this different why why am I getting a different sensation watching this to watching a men's game why is it slower etc um so, yeah, I think it is different between team and individual sports. Would you agree, Rachel? I mean, I, you know, Jessica Ennis-Hill has never been compared to... Well, certainly in my experience of covering Jessica Ennis-Hill has never been compared to Daly Thompson or the, the abilities and skill of Serena Williams aren't compared to Novak Djokovic. But whereas, actually, you, you in your career might have been compared to David Seaman or Peter Schmeichel. There is a difference. Oh, there is. I mean, if you go back to, I think one of the main reasons is if you go back to uh, women's football being banned for 50 years, you know, it's only recent generations, probably me being of the first generation, where you can actually watch women's sport on TV. Team sport, I'm talking about. Um, in Olympics, yes, you, you always there's always been coverage, uh, certainly of, say, of track events. Uh, during Wimbledon, you always see, obviously, the tennis. Um, so individual sports, I think, have 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 not fell, fallen foul to kind of that rule of exception. I mean, when I was growing up, you could never, you could, I would never have seen a women's football match on TV, a women's rugby match, a women's cricket match, a netball match any form of team sport, I would never, ever. The only female role models I could remember growing up were the likes of Sally Gunnell, um, Catherine Granger. They were people who were the number one in their sport that I could access, which was for every four years in the Olympics. So I think that's a huge reason for it. You know, I'm about to turn 40. I've finished my playing career now. And it's only now, really, you know, the, the generation of, of my daughter who will be, it will be normal for them to turn on a, a sports channel and access women's team sports. And think how long it takes for perceptions to be changed. I'll come on to perception in just a moment. When you were growing up then, when you were 10, 11, were you playing football? And if so, how were you playing football? Yeah, I was playing football at my primary school. Um, I remember going to watch my first ever match I was, I'm from Burnley and I uh, went down to Wembley with mum and dad and it was the first ever ma match I'd ever been to and it was Burnley in the Sherpa Van Trophy final uh, a very prestigious tournament um, <laughs> and but it was I was only seven years old and it got me hooked you know something about the atmosphere the I love the singing the drama the excitement Wembley way being packed the colours everything about it you know the full uh, sensory experience of it just 
got me interested. Uh, but I'd never watched a match before, not on TV or or or, uh, or certainly live. Uh, but I remember the first World Cup I watched was uh, Italia 90. And, uh, you know, by then I had the Peter Shelton goalie strip. I was playing for my primary school team after diving around on the tarmac and the PE teacher sort of finally let me have a go um, during, during PE, going down to boys PE. And... Um, it kind of went from there. I don't think I really had anyone say you can't do this because you're, you're a girl until it got to secondary school and then I wasn't allowed to play mixed football at the time. So it was really just my own self-love of it. Uh, my role models growing up were Peter Schmeichel um, was my favourite goalkeeper. Chris Wood was, and, and Peter Shilton were the first England goalkeepers I recognised. So there's certainly no uh, female influence um, in my progress through football, certainly in, in those formative years when I was getting started. And this is the catch-up. It's, it's not only the women's football being banned professionally for 50 years, Sarah, it's also how football and sport is taught at grassroots level. And I you know, I've probably bored a lot of people with this in, in recent days and, and weeks. I've been talking about it a fair bit, but... You know, I've got a 12-year-old daughter, I've also got a six-year-old daughter, but it was only when my 12-year-old was nine or ten and in year five at school that a girls' football team started because a teacher arrived at the school and thought, oh, I want to start a girls' football team, and, and he did. And actually, at a lot, a lot of schools, PE and sport is still very gender-based in that, you know, boys will do football, girls will do netball, so on and so forth. And actually, th this is probably where we need to start in that... Boys and girls all do netball. Boys and girls all do football. Boys and girls all do rounders. Boys and girls all do cricket. And and so if we're only just starting this now, that gives an indication of what we're talking about when we're talking long term. Actually, I, I wrote a book in, in 2016 called Kicking Off, um, How Women in Sport Are Changing the Game. And um, as part of that, I went into um, a few schools, actually, to look at you know, the provisions for, for PE for, for boys and girls. And there was a school I went into in, in South London and it was a girls' school. And they, they, they had a fantastic range of, of sports lessons. I think they even, they brought in external people to teach, you know, all sorts of things like karate. They did horse riding. And I said, do you offer football? And they said, oh, no, we don't. And I was like baffled, <laughs> you know, this really good school thinking of outside the box they even had a gym in the school you know like a proper gym with treadmills and stuff which I never had when I was at school and and I said well why why don't you have football for the girls and they said oh we've got no one here who really you know wants to teach or, or has the expertise to teach it I was like well what? <laughs> it seemed crazy to me you know this was only this was 2016 it's not that long ago women's football was still you know in on the rise I suppose um so yeah we definitely have to make sure that in schools you know, sport is just offered as sport, not the boys do this, yes. the girls do that. Um, because otherwise that's how they grow up thinking, well, football isn't a sport for girls, boxing isn't a sport for girls. So, yeah, it has to start absolutely at, in those schools um, and we have to make sure that everything is offered to everybody. Therefore, does it not have to be legislation? Would Is that what you would do? Would you would would you legislate on that? Absolutely. And it has to be from primary school. You know, doing it at secondary school, for me, it's not too late, but if we're talking about perceptions, if uh, if young children uh, going to primary school at the age of five or six, right, boys do, uh, do football, girls don't, 
that's what they learn at that age. Simple as that. Um, so it has to start at primary school. It's something that worries me that a primary school or certainly a secondary school with the what you learn as a PE teacher, because I'm a qualified PE teacher, what you learn as a PE teacher doing your PGCE, this, that's just an excuse, not being able to teach football. Yes, yes. Um, how, how does it work? In, how does it work in in the US, Meg, when it comes to provision of school sports? Yeah, I mean, I think we don't necessarily have the same general approach. I think our bigger concern on the younger side is that kids are getting stuck in like at a at a way too high level right like at age five it's like you're playing soccer and that's it right like you're not allowed to play multiple sports it it turns less from a recreational and play thing into a okay i'm on the track for the national team at age five right so i think that's been one of our bigger pushes here is to have kids play multiple sports have it actually be this this fun activity instead of um you know putting them onto this track of travel teams. And, and one of our other, our other big things is just how affordable is being able to play sports um, from a recreational point of view. Um, that's been a huge, huge discussion in terms of soccer is that it, it turns very expensive very quickly, despite the fact that soccer is not really an expensive sport to play at all. So I think those are some of our bigger issues rather than the actual encouragement of of young girls to to play sports. Let me bring it back then to the Women's Super League and, and the domestic game in the UK. Is it growing fast enough for you at the moment, Rachel? Should crowds be bigger at this stage given how the last four or five years have gone? have gone or is it about where it should be well i think that's probably the biggest frustration for the fa and for the clubs is you know we want to see the the excitement and the the interest that was shown at national team level as far as the viewing figures for at, at live games um as well as you know on the tv reflect in a massive change a sea change in at domestic level and that hasn't changed it has changed sorry but not dramatically so i think different clubs the fa are trying different strategies ensuring that they're capturing the correct data of who is coming to the matches who um you know if, if you're using a premier league uh, say manchester united as an example billy are they sending out promos to all their current season ticket holders or do they need to look at a different marketing strategy uh, so I think that is the, the biggest and lasting frustration for players as well. You know, imagine playing at um, Wembley as we did in the Olympics in 2012 against Brazil. And there was 88,000 people at that game. Five weeks later, you go and play for your club in front of 500 people. That is a massive come down. And it's still not that dissimilar. There have been changes the likes of Chelsea have their own ground now you know their own standalone ground and therefore can use the local area to ensure that you know they're building their fan base from people who can walk to the stadium as an example not just Chelsea fans who then want to support Chelsea women so I think partly the ground situation plays a part in that um, because not only, you know, if you're changing home ground, then that you're, you're trying to recapture or getting a, a different audience to the games, but also the standard of fixtures. We talked about Liverpool, uh, sorry, the standard of grounds. Tramere have had so many games rained off this season that 
there's no continuity, no momentum of fixtures. And that also affects the fan base of those domestic clubs. So until we get a standard of ground that will be able to ensure that there are fixtures week in, week out across the Women's Super League uh, teams, then we're still going to fall foul of some of the long-lasting problems that we've had. Sarah, how would you how would you grow it? Yeah, I think um, Rachel's hit on one of the key points there in terms of location and also marketing of that location. Because I think if you ask if you ask a lot of Chelsea fans or Arsenal fans where their team, their women's team plays, I think a lot of them probably wouldn't know, which is crazy. So that that is key. I also think having a regular, a really regular time slot for games would be a really big step forward and I, I know there's been an appetite from BT to actually get women's game on get women's games on in the 3 p.m Saturday slot which is obviously a blackout period for for the for, for football matches but I know that they've, they've tried to convince various parties that you know it would be a good step forward for the women's game it could they could also almost own that slot in terms of tv but they haven't been able to to get the you know right people to sort of agree to it um but i i, I think down the line that that could be something that we will end up seeing um which i think would be good you know to have that regular time slot where you know there's going to be a women's game on tv every saturday at three o'clock you know would really help so i think that that kind of regularity is key because the, the games seem to shift around that it's not helped by bad grounds which mean games are cancelled regularly but but yeah cont- continuity is really key well that 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 would strike me as the obvious one to be honest you know even if you made uh, thursday night is women's football night with a game on the telly but all the other games taking place as well so that you know as a family as a supporter whatever that that there is that there is that destination time of when you get your your women's football i mean i i have discussions with in cricket a lot at the moment why why they don't get their audience why they don't get fans and why it was so much better in the 80s and 90s or whatever it may be it's like well you had a you had a competition called the sunday league i.e every game took place on a sunday afternoon and there was one on telly and all the others were taking place as well if if people knew when you would get your 40 over limited over cricket because it was the sunday league at the moment, not only, Rachel, are you probably saying, well, half these fans don't know where their teams play, they couldn't tell you when. Yeah, that's absolutely a frustration. And I think what you said there, Mark, um, about nailing down a home slot for women's football. Um, yeah, we have Champions League football, you know, on a Tuesday, Wednesday, we have Europa League football on a Wednesday, Thursday. We have Friday night football. We have Saturday night football we've seen this season. Um, but that three o'clock on a Saturday, is something that's been, you know, is a, a blackout spot for men's football. And that rule was created for men's football to ensure that crowds, uh, fans still went to their home matches, uh, which are traditionally are three o'clock on a Saturday. But that doesn't apply to women's football. You know, I can't remember the last time I played a, a, a match on a Saturday. You know, we generally play on Sundays. But if our slot was to be three o'clock on a Saturday, that would be a, a huge, huge move. It needs to move fast because women's football needs a home and then market accordingly. I just want to end on a little bit how Rachel started, really. with with She mentioned Jill Ellis right at, at the start. I suppose the first question in, in all of this with Jill Ellis is, is, Meg, do you think there's a possibility she might come to the UK to take I, over the England team? I certainly think that there is a possibility. I, I think that 
you know, one of the big reasons why she left the U.S. national team is that that's really the highest pressured job here in America when it comes to women's soccer. You win two World Cups. Not really sure what you can do after that in terms of accomplishments. So I think that she she hit every goal that she had set for herself and then was able to to walk away on her own terms. I know that she also wanted to spend more time with her family, which I do think is maybe the one bigger question mark about her potentially heading over to England for the job. But I mean, it would reunite her with Don Scott. The two of them had a huge amount of success when it can, when it comes to fitness and just, you know, the ability for, for the U.S. national team to kind of run through a full 90 minutes at 110% um, effectiveness. So I, I absolutely think there's a possibility, um, but I, I'm very curious to see how it plays out. And if it was Jill Ellis, Sarah, what, what do you think that would say for women's coaches or you know girls or teenagers or young women who want to go into that side of the game I mean a lot of our discussion has actually been on the playing side of things rather than the coaching side but a high profile female coach in charge of the England team then that opens up a pathway for lots of women who might not want to play the game but want to be involved as part of backroom staff and coaching yeah I think I think it it would be great to have um a high-profile female coach in 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 that role, um, you know, which we have had before with Hope Powell, etc. I do think when it comes to the England job, I, I I'm not the, I'm not someone who says it has to be a woman next. I want the best person for the job, but I do happen to believe the best person for the job is probably Jill Ellis, because <laughs> um, I, I think she would absolutely drive standards. I think Phil Neville has helped drive standards um, when it comes to his demands from the FA, etc. But I think Jill Ellis would pick that up and, and carry that right on. You know, she would demand that things are done correctly, that the players have everything that they need. Um, she would, I think, liaise very well with the clubs and really push them as well to provide for her players. So, yeah, I think it would be a, a real positive to have someone like like Jill in the role, um, not, not just because she's a woman, but because I think she'd be the best person for that job. Yeah, one thing on that front, just from an American point of view, is that um, she, she really, like... I don't know if she got the full amount of credit that she should have for improving standards at NWSL. Really, from 2013 on, she made sure that U.S. national team players had everything they needed from a training point of view, but that also raised the standards for every other NWSL player. So it's not just the national team picture that you're looking at here. It then would absolutely impact WSL as well. Rachel. Yeah, I'd echo what you both just said there. The fact that she's female and high profile, it doesn't have to be a female to be uh, the best person for the England job, but I, I believe she is, simply because she's proven herself under pressure at the very, very top level, probably under the highest scrutiny there is in women's team sport, arguably, in the world, uh, as far as the US women's national team, uh, and delivered. She's also worked alongside Dawn Scott, as Meg said, uh, has come back, been reunited with the Lionesses. She started off the strength and conditioning programme when I was part of the, the women's national team uh, and really pioneered that um, sports science element and was headhunted by the US women's national team to go on and has won Olympics and, and World Cups. And I think the key thing in that is that both Dawn Scott and if Jill Ellis were to come in, they know what it's like day in, day out to feel like a winner to feel, train like, act like, work like someone who expects to win every single match. 
I think that would raise the level of training, raise the level of expectation across the group and raise the real drive that our group of lionesses, I think, need to really, truly believe that they can become number one in the world. I think that seems a very, very good place to leave it. And we got through all the technological challenges as well, which, <laughs> which is a brilliant, a brilliant effort. We got the, we got there in the end. Thank you very much for listening to us, uh, and we will do another one next week on the Future of Football podcast.